Thank you for joining us for the Tucson Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Brent Armstrong. This podcast features the messages from the teaching and preaching ministry at our church. Tucson Baptist Church is located in Tucson, Arizona, and we are committed to loving God, growing together, and reaching our community. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit TucsonBaptist.com. We pray that today's message is an encouragement to you. John chapter 6 this morning, we are going to uh, go over a very familiar passage of Scripture. And if we know about the Bible, we know the Bible is written in different literary styles. And uh, if you go in the Old Testament, there's uh, a couple books that are uh, about uh, poetry. We go to Psalms and Proverbs. And we go into Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. It's the book of the law or history. And here uh, in, in the book of John and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have the four Gospels. And these are the narrative accounts of what Jesus did and the ministry that he did while he was here on earth. And in John chapter 6, we have a very familiar passage of Scripture where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Spoiler alert, he did it, and we'll talk about it today, but this is a very uh, familiar passage of Scripture. And as we begin this passage of Scripture, I would just ask you, sometimes when we read a passage that we've read before, or we've heard a story that we've heard many times in the past, we think, oh, this is a story that should belong to Kid Planet. But really, there's a greater picture, there's a greater understanding of the story that we'll talk about uh, later uh, this morning as we conclude this message. But if you would, we're going to read the first 15 verses of, of, of chapter 6, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you stay seated for this. But if you would, join me in verse number 1. And the Bible says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And, if, and this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what, what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in a number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed, uh, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down. And likewise of the fishes, as, they, as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, saith, This is of a truth that prophet should, that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Father, as we open up this service and this message with a word of prayer, God, I do ask that you would speak to every one of us this morning. And Lord, through your word, through your Holy Spirit, Lord, we know that in Isaiah the Bible says that the word of our God does not fade away, Lord. 
And we know that the Holy Spirit is active and He works among us. And Lord, as we look at this passage of Scripture, which may be very familiar, may we look at it with fresh eyes and a fresh heart. And Lord, may we invite the Holy Spirit to work in every one of our hearts this morning. God, I do ask that you would just give me clarity of mind and, 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 and free delivery and, and clear delivery of your word this morning. God, I pray that you'll be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. In just a few weeks, and maybe even this past week, many of the teenagers and children of our, of our school, of, of our church, are going back to their various schools. And one of the greatest things that they do as they get ready for school is they'll go to Walmart or they'll go to one of the other uh, places here in town and they'll get a new backpack and many of them will get a new lunchbox. And it signifies a new start to the school year. And they'll go on the first day of school and they'll, they'll kind, of, kind of get through their initial classes and they can't wait till they get to lunch so they can open up to see what they have. And I remember uh, going to school and, and the lunch period time came and it was probably the best part of the day. The teachers weren't teaching, so there's no education. You could talk to whoever you wanted to. And I loved my meals that my, my parents or my mom would prepare for me. And she always knew that I had a sweet tooth. So she would put a, a Swiss roll in it or a little oatmeal cream pie. And I loved, uh, I loved my lunchtime. But if I'm honest with you and if I could be transparent, um, I don't think I ever shared any of my food. When it came down to it, someone asked for this or that. I'm like, are you kidding me? No, get lost. This is my food. And I'm so thankful this morning that here in John chapter 6, we don't have a selfish lad. We have a, a selfless lad that gave up of his lunch to give to Jesus. And in John chapter 6, we see the important story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And this morning, as we go through this narrative, the story of Scripture, we're going to kind of walk through the story. And we'll look at the four points that really make this story important. And then at the end of this message, we're going to ask the question, What's in your lunchbox? What's in your lunchbox? If you would notice from me first this morning, we see the seasons, the seasons. In John chapter 6 and verse number 1, the Bible starts this chapter by saying this. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee. Now again, because this is a narrative, because John is writing the, the detailed story of how Jesus was going about his ministry, he was referencing the things that had previously happened in John chapter 5. And this morning, there's three seasons that we see. First of all, we see that Jesus was in the season of ministry. He was in the season of ministry. And as Jesus was going about his ministry, healing the sick, healing the blind, cast, or preaching, of people, preaching to people the kingdom of God is at hand and of what true salvation is, Jesus was going about his ministry in many different areas of, of, the, the, of, of where he was at in that time period. In John chapter 5, we see Jesus was ministering. In fact, he goes into the city, and, and there is a crippled man who's been crippled for 38 years. And Jesus goes, and with the words of his mouth, he tells him to take up his bed and walk again. And Jesus came about to this earth to heal, to, to show compassion, and to show kindness, and really to ultimately show the way to heaven. So Jesus was doing a season of ministry. But John chapter 5 also shares that Jesus was not just in a season of ministry Jesus was going through a season of hardship. Jesus was going through a season of hardship. In John chapter 5, verse 16, John says, And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Now the Jews are the people that Jesus really came to this earth to save. 
He came to be the Messiah for the Jews, and he came to love them and to show them that, that his fulfillment of prophecy is he was the Messiah. But we know that the Jews were many people who kept the outward traditions, they kept the law, but yet their heart was not transformed by the very person that they wished to serve. And so the Jews saw that Jesus performed this miracle on the Sabbath day. If we were to go back to Exodus and we were to look at the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments is to keep the Sabbath day holy. So the, the Jews at the time, they, they knew that what Jesus was doing was counter-cultural or was against the law. So therefore, he couldn't be the Messiah because he wasn't here to fulfill or to abide by the law. So we see that the Jews saw that Jesus healed the, the paralytic man and they decided that they wanted to kill him. However, we see in two verses later in John chapter 5, verse 18, that they were even more irate after Jesus claimed to be the God of the Old Testament and equality with him. And they say, the Bible says in John chapter 5, verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus, was, he came to this earth to serve, to be a minister. And that's exactly what he was doing. But the season of ministry led to a season of hardship. And like many times when, when, the, when things just start going downhill, they start rapidly going downhill. It's around the same time that the season of ministry led to a season of hardship, which led to a season of loss. A season of loss. And while John's gospel does not record the details that we're about to discuss, the, the Matthew, Mark, some of the other gospels give great uh, definition and detail of what Jesus was going through at the same time time we see that there was a season of loss in Matthew 14 the Bible details this account and it says in verse 12 and his John the the Baptist disciples came and took up his body and buried it and went and told Jesus at the same time that Jesus was ministering and healing the paralytic and giving sight to the blind at the same time in another city Herod the Great was had his feast and in Matthew chapter 14, it, tells, uh, it details this feast, and, and he had this, this young, his, his niece or his family member come to him and say, give me whatever you want, I will, give up, I will give to you. And she says, I want the head of John the Baptist. Now, several weeks ago, as pastor was going through the book of Matthew, he said, who is the greatest person who has ever lived? And all of us in unison said, Jesus. And pastor said, you're wrong. Now, we, we, Jesus is the greatest person who ever lived, but Jesus himself said that, that John the Baptist, the forerunner, was the greatest person who has ever lived. So Jesus is in the ministry and, and healing the blind and healing the sick, and in this same time of hardship, the John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and tell him that he was ultimately beheaded and martyred for his faith. Imagine, imagine being in this situation. Jesus was doing the thing that he came to do, to heal, to, show, to do miracles, to show that he truly was God. And yet because of this ministry, the, the, the hardship and the persecution by the Jews came on in an unrelenting fashion. And around the same time, he receives the word that his forerunner, his, his confidant, his, the person who's doing what, what he came to do himself, John the Baptist, ultimately was beheaded for this as well. So this season of ministry and hardship and loss put verse number one into perspective. After these things, Jesus goes into over the Sea of Galilee. As Jesus moved to this next city, into the next season of his ministry, so too did the followers. 
Because the Bible says that after these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, but also in verse number 2, a great multitude followed him because they saw the miracles which Jesus did. So they, because the, the multitude saw Jesus' miracles, they followed him to the next town. And However, at this point in the day, Jesus recognized, secondly this morning, the problem. The problem. We saw the seasons of Jesus' ministry, but now we see the second part of this passage, that there's a great problem. In verse number 5, the Bible details the, the, the problem. And Jesus says in verse number 5, When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, which is one of the disciples, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And really, there's, there's a pretty big problem here. When there's a big multitude of people that have come to see Jesus do miracles and to do these great things, he says, wait a second, there's a lack of food. First of all, we see that the problem was there was a lack of food. The Bible says in verse number 10 that there were about 5,000 men. Now, many commentators believe that, that these 5,000 men were just the men that were present. So there were women, there were children, and this number could have gotten between fifteen to 20,000 people. But while we don't know that, what we do know is 5,000 people is quite a bit of people. In fact, a couple weeks ago during our anniversary Sunday, we had over 900 people here, and we were trying to fit everybody in the gym, and, and that was a tough task. Now multiply that times five, and guess what? They don't have commercial kitchens. They don't have Costco. They don't have any of that stuff. And so now Jesus is saying, hey, we, they're following us, and where are we going to get this food? So he, he looks at his disciple, and he says, hey, uh, Philip, wh where are we going to get the food? Where, where, whence? Where are we going to go buy the food that we may eat? And really, he, Jesus was pointing out to Philip two, two problems. First of all, there was no food, and there was nowhere to go get the food. So what Jesus was leading Philip to was a solution that was not to be found. He, in all of his mind and all of his ideas, he, he couldn't get to a solution. And, and we see that because in, in verse number 7, Philip responds, and he says, Jesus... Philip answered on him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. So Jesus says that there's a lack of food. Philip says that there's a lack of funds. There's a lack of funds. And Philip says, Jesus, let's, let's just think about this. In, in today's society, not today, but back then, in today's society back then, an unskilled worker would, would, would make one penny or one denarius per day. So Jesus is, or so Philip is looking at Jesus and he says, Jesus, let, let me get this straight. You want to feed all of these people. Yeah, that's what I said. Okay. Okay. Now let's just think about this. I know you own the cattle on a thousand hill. I know that you've created everything, but let's just think about this. Um, Jesus, okay, we have our disciples here. We, we can work 200 days and still not have enough money to pay for this one event. Je Jesus, we can work almost seven months and we still do not have enough money. In Mark's account of this story, in Mark chapter 6, verse 35 and 36, the disciples tell Jesus, Jesus, this is a desert place and now the time is far past. Send them away that they may go into the country round about and, to, and into the villages and buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. The disciples knew that there was not enough money or food present to feed the multitude. Now, let's ask a question this morning. Were they wrong in their assessment? Were they wrong? By all accounts and measures, they were exactly right. 
When they looked at their little satchel, they saw that they didn't have 200 denarius or 200 penny worth. They, they had probably nothing. And they said, Jesus, we're out of options. I mean, everybody's looking at you, but, but we're out of options. There's a great problem here. By all accounts and measures, they were, they were right. And what I love about it this morning as I was preparing for this message, I, I, here's what I know to be true. When man sees a problem, God sees an opportunity. When there's a problem that stands before you, that's an opportunity for God to do something that you can't even dream about. And that's exactly what we see in the story because while they saw a problem, this problem very quickly, Jesus uses this perceived problem to perform the miracle. The miracle. And we see that in verses 8 through 13, the miracle of this story. And Jesus uses a perceived problem to bring about a miracle. And, and really, he uses three different areas or tools to bring about this miracle. First of all, he brings a willing lad. A willing lad. In verse number 8, the Bible says, And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? Now, while we don't use the term lad anymore, it's really just talking about a small, a small child or someone who was of a, young, of a youth, someone who wasn't mature in age. And, and he had a small little satchel with him that had five loaves of bread and two small fishes. Perhaps in the, the busyness of their day, Jesus was ministering and doing all these wonderful things. Perhaps in the busyness of this day, this little lad just comes up and sits on a rock next to Jesus. And he's watching, how he's heard about Jesus and his family, and he's just sitting there perched on a rock, just intentive to see, or intent to see what Jesus is talking about. Listening to what Jesus is doing and being taken aback by all the, the power and knowledge that Jesus has. And, and he is just in amaze of what is going on. And then Jesus kind of huddles his disciples and he says, all right, what are we going to do? And this lad's like, wait, Jesus has been doing all these miracles and he's doing all this. And, and then the light bulb goes on. Wait, I've got five loaves of bread and two fish. Now what I love about that is it shows what, what kids truly are. Kids have a tender heart. Kids have a tender spirit. And they are willing to give anything of themselves because they haven't been hurt yet and their hearts haven't been jaded by this sinful world. And while we don't know exactly how the lad got here, we know that he was a crucial piece to this miracle. And this little lad did not know what was about to happen. He simply just offered what he had. So Philip, or, so, or uh, in verse number 8, we see Andrew brings this lad to Jesus. And, and it's almost like he came to Jesus with a little bit of um, guilt. He said, Jesus, here's this, but what, what are they among so many? It's almost like, here's a solution, but I don't think that this is going to work. And so he kind of brings them, and then very quickly Jesus says, okay, make the men sit down. So this little lad, a willing lad, was led to an obedient act, an obedient act. Now, the disciples had no clue what was about to happen. The little lad had no clue what was about to happen. But Jesus said, make the men sit down. And once Andrew brought this little lad to Jesus, he gave the command, and quickly the disciples went about the crowd and, and made them sit down. And in other Gospels that, that detail this story, some were, so they sat down in companies of 50 and some of 100. And really, the, we don't see that the disciples questioned anything. They just simply obeyed God's command. And that brings us to this, a really uh, important uh, uh, quote that's there in your notes. Ordinary acts of obedience pave the way 
to extraordinary acts of God. You see, many times God tells us to do something through his word. God commands us to act a certain way or, or to give of ourselves, and whether that's offerings or whether that's our talents. And, and God just asks us to take that step of faith. And you know what? Many times we have to take the step of faith without knowing what's about to happen. And that's exactly what we see here. The little lad comes and he brings his offering and his little lunch and Jesus takes it and he tells the disciples, okay, go sit down. Now, could you imagine the disciples as they were going about and, and they're making the men sit down, the, everybody sit down. Hey, hey, uh, Andrew, hey, disciple, you know it's getting kind of late. What, what, what are we going to do for food? Yeah, your guess is as good as mine. Just sit down. And they're having to ask these, answer these questions and all they're saying is, listen, we don't know what's about to happen, but all we know is we're taking a step of faith. We are just obeying God. And I promise you in our Christian life, and as you begin walking with Christ, and as you begin doing, having your faith journey, there will be times where God tells you to take a step of faith. And you say, okay, well, what's the next step? And he says, don't worry about that. Take a step of faith. And you take that step of faith, and you're waiting, and people are asking you questions, well, what's next? And you're like, I'm waiting on Jesus. And you know, we have to be comfortable in the waiting. Because when we are in the waiting, what we're doing is we're saying, Lord, we're waiting on you. And that's exactly what we see here. The disciples, they obey Jesus. And the ordinary act of obedience paved the way for an extraordinary act of God. Because of their obedience, we see that there was ultimately a physical feast. A physical feast. Jesus takes the five barley loaves and, and two fish that this little lad brings him. And, and he looks up to heaven. With everybody's eyes looking at Jesus, he looks up to heaven and thanks God. And after that, he begins, the, he pulls the disciples close to him and he just begins pulling apart the bread, pulling apart the fish. And this bread that is getting smaller and smaller gets longer and longer. And, and I don't know how it happens. And frankly speaking, when we get to heaven, maybe we can watch it in the, the, the cinema room of, of heaven. And I don't know how it happened, but what I do know is that Jesus provided a physical feast. They keep going and going and going, and eventually they get to the 5,000 and one person. And they rush back to the front and say, Jesus, everybody has been fed. I don't know how you did it. I don't know what, what you did with the bread or the fish, but you made everybody happy, and everybody's fed, and everybody is full. And I love that, the, that, that John uses several key words here in, in this passage. In verse number 12, it says this, when they were filled. Verse 13, which remained over and above. You know, when we go back to the very beginning of this passage, Philip said, we don't have enough money that they can even eat a little. Because in the disciples' minds, they were thinking, we have to feed them, but even if we just give them a little, there's not enough. But in God's mind, or in Jesus' mind, he's saying, I am come to give them abundance. And that's exactly what Jesus says. We see that in John 10, 10. Jesus says, I am come that they might have life, and that they might have life more abundantly. Jesus brings abundant life if we will but take and receive that which he offers to us. And all of the miracles and acts of Jesus really caused a response. And many times Jesus would, would heal someone. He says, go and don't tell anybody. Or go and sin no more. And here, this miracle really is no different. Because of the miracle of what Jesus did, we see in verse number 14 and 15, the reaction. 
the reaction. And in verse number 14, we see the reaction of a carnal following. The reaction of a carnal following. In verse number 14, the Bible says, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. And again, this was in reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15 and 18 where, where they, they knew that the Messiah would come, but, but he was going to be a king who would provide for them. See, this carnal following, in our minds, we might read verse 14 and we're saying, oh, they, they realized that that was the Messiah. That that was the one who was supposed to be coming. But we see that the same group of people was rebuked by Jesus in verse number 26. Because Jesus says unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. You see that the crowd there, the multitude, they wanted Jesus to become the earthly king to fulfill and provide for their needs. They saw that Jesus made, they made their bellies full out of nothing. And they said, if Jesus could do that here in this desert place, what could he do for us if we gave him the resources of the throne? And they wanted Jesus to be the king, the earthly king in that moment because they simply cared about their temporary satisfaction and earthly fulfillment. But thankfully, this carnal following didn't put Jesus on the throne because we have an understanding Savior. An understanding Savior. In verse number 15, the story concludes, When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force, to make him a king, he departed once again, or again, into a mountain himself alone. Once Jesus realized that they wanted him to become their king, he quickly departed once again. And why did Jesus not want to become the king? Well, in Luke 19, verse 10, the Bible says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And Jesus was focused on a mission that he had. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many, the Bible says. And Jesus did not come to this earth to be one of the kings, but to be the only Savior. And because Jesus is the only Savior, he now is the King of kings. And Jesus did not stoop to an earthly job or an earthly role or fulfillment of what they wanted because he knew he had a greater mission in store. Jesus wanted to fulfill his mission by being the Savior and not just the earthly king. But again, while this is just a narrative, this really plays into a bigger picture of what Jesus is trying to teach the disciples. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he calls the disciples to come and follow them, to take up their cross and follow them. And, and all throughout the, the calling of the disciples, Jesus would use parables and phrases to where they're like, what does it mean to take up our cross? What does it mean to deny ourselves daily? What does it mean to do these things that are countercultural to what we normally know to be true? Throughout Jesus' ministry, he would speak to the disciples about the kingdom of God. And this was revolutionary to the disciples. And the kingdom of God is so different than the kingdom of man. Notice with me, if you would, these verses that speak of the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 4, verse 11 through 12, Mark says, And Jesus said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see, but not understand, and hearing they may hear, and not understand. Unless at any time they should be converted 
and their sins should be forgiven them. Jesus is telling the disciples that you as a follower of Christ have been given the mystery. You, you understand the mystery of the kingdom of God. Because if you do have not tuned into the, the kingdom of God, what I speak and the things that I do, they look like I'm doing magic. They don't understand. Because the, the kingdom of God is in juxtaposition to the kingdom of man. In Matthew 6, verse 33, the Bible says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these things, the temporary earthly things, shall be added unto you. Luke 17, verse 21, Neither shall they say, Lo, here or lo, there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand that you as a follower of me, you are a fisher of men, you are going after the kingdom of God. There are things that you will experience on this earth that will get you to show if you are following after the kingdom of man or if you're following after the kingdom of God. And in Luke's account of this very story, in Luke 9, verse 11, the Bible says, And the people, when they knew it, followed him, and he received them, and spake unto them of the kingdom of God, and healed them that had need of healing. So in this very setting, in this very day, Jesus was trying to get the disciples to see that they needed to follow after the kingdom of God, and not just the kingdom of man. But what is the distinction between the kingdom of God and what is the distinction between the kingdom of man and why does it matter? And the kingdom of God is experienced by anyone who seeks it with a humble and repentant heart. When you get saved, you, you open up yourselves to experience the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not limited to human experience and it often operates in the supernatural. Just as in this story, by all accounts and measures, what they thought they needed to do, there was no answer. They, they couldn't feed anybody. They, they didn't have the resources. They didn't have the food. And so in the earthly kingdom, there was no hope. But Jesus does not operate in the kingdom of man. He operates in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of man is experienced by all who are born. It is limited to what human experiences can imagine, and it operates in the natural realm. And as we close this, this, this message this morning, I, I want us to ask the question, what's in your lunchbox? What's in your lunchbox? You know, in just a couple of days, our kids are going to go back to school and they're going to have lunchbox of all different varieties. And as I was picking these up, these are the most basic lunchboxes I could find. Some of them had rhinos on it. Some of them had the Mario and Luigi on them. And, and all of our kids are going to have all sorts of lunchboxes. And again, like I said, growing up, I didn't have the healthiest eating habits in my lunch uh, with a Swiss roll and all that fun stuff. But you know what? We're going to use this pink lunchbox to represent the kingdom of man. The kingdom of man is short-term. It doesn't have the long-term in, in, in view. But the kingdom of man is also an unhealthy habit. It's like the, the Swiss roll, the, uh, the oatmeal cream pie. The can of Coke in there. The things that feel good right now, but are going to give me health problems down the road. This is the kingdom of man. But the kingdom of God is long-term. This is the one who understands that God is not limited to what we can believe in. To, to limited to what we can conceive in. And this is the, the healthy lunchbox, so to speak. The one that, if we're all honest, doesn't taste good. It's the kale salad. It's the water. It's the apple, right? It's the, the things that... 
An apple a day keeps the doctor away, but who in the world does it anyway, right? And so, so we actually just made that up. That was pretty good. Uh, uh, but, um, but this is the kingdom of God. This is what's saying, hey, I believe that there's a long-term thing. And I'm going to ask this a question. I'm going to be very practical as we conclude this message. What's in your lunchbox this morning? As we close this message, we're going to look at four attitudes of the kingdom of man and four attitudes of the kingdom of God. First of all, as we look at the kingdom of man, the first attitude that I see here in this story, in verse number 7, the first attitude of the kingdom of man is this, the problem that I have is hopeless. The problem that I have is hopeless. In verse number 7, Philip answering says, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. Here, here Philip is saying, listen, I, I see the problem, but there's no hope. There's no way forward, Jesus. It's over. There's nothing left. We're we're done. Send them away. Because the problem that I have is hopeless. You know, many of us, if we're not careful, we will allow that same mentality and that same attitude to affect our own life. We might go to the doctor, and the doctor gives a life-altering diagnosis, and instead of praying about it, we start worrying about it, and we say, well, there's no hope. Maybe we look at our finances and we say that there's no way to get out of the debt or, or I'm waiting on a job and so there's no hope there. Or, or maybe when it comes to our addictions of this life, whether it's, whether it's a, a something that we have to, we're so focused on that, that makes us feel better or whether it's the addiction of worry or guilt or forgiveness or unforgiveness or bitterness, we say there's no hope, there's no victory. Maybe this morning you're saying, Jonathan, when it comes to my health, my finances, and my addictions, I have no hope in any of those. And right now, maybe you're thinking, my life is hopeless. If I could just encourage all of us this morning, if we have the kingdom of man mentality, the kingdom of man attitude, frankly speaking, all the problems that we face are hopeless. And that's exactly what Philip says. We, we could cast stones at Philip. We could say, Philip, you didn't have faith. You know, when we are confronted with a problem, what faith do we have? When we have a, when the, if we have an attitude of the kingdom of man, we see that, number one, the problem that I have is hopeless. But secondly, I see that the solution that I see is helpless. The solution that I see is helpless. And in verse number nine, uh, we see that Andrew comes to Jesus and he says, here is a lad, but what are, what are they among so many? The, the solution that I see, Jesus, this is what I want to give you, but I know that it's helpless. We say, why, why should I minister to anybody? Why should I share my faith with anybody? Have you seen how big our, our, our city is? Man, wh- what I do is not going to make a difference. It's helpless. There, there's n- why should I pass out a track? Why should I have, go on an outreach? Why should I do it? It's helpless. I don't see the end result here, and that's exactly what we see here. And, and maybe you're trying to get victory over sin, and you say, I want victory, but I know that I will fail again, and I will fall again, so why even try the solution that I see is helpless? I think if we're honest this morning, many of us, we've had problems that have been hopeless. We've had solutions that are helpless, but number three, I see that the offering that I give is useless. The offering that I give is useless. Surely as in verse number 9, as Andrew is bringing the five loaves and two fish to Jesus, he knows that there's a deficit. He says, Jesus, here's what I want to give you, but I don't know what you can take this. I, 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 don't, know, I don't know how you're going to make this, this work out. The, the offering that I give is useless. But again, he says, but what are they among so many? You know, Jesus, throughout the New Testament, many times, God loves a cheerful giver. 
And, and we've been encouraged to, to give of our tithes and offerings. And, and we look around at all these people in this crowd and we say, surely my offering won't make a difference. Surely my talents won't make a difference. We, we look up in the choir and we say, man, I would sing in the choir, but look, at, there's so many people up there. What I have to offer, it, it's useless. It's not going to make a difference. Frankly speaking, in the kingdom of man attitude, that makes sense. Because we can't see how God is going to take what we have and take it to the next level. And fourthly, the last attitude I see of the, the kingdom of man is the task that I do is meaningless. The task that I do is meaningless. Bear with me here as I read into the story a little bit. I'm sure that, some, that little lad had made, probably made his lunch just like that many days the exact same way. Maybe he made it. Maybe his mom made it. Maybe his dad or his big sister or big brother made the lunch for him. But I would imagine that that's probably not the first time he's ever had five barley loaves and two small fishes for it. And that morning as he was maybe going at his home and, and he saw this big crowd, so he's maybe hurrying and, and hustling, he says, I am making just another lunch today. And yet what he didn't realize is that the task that he did was not meaningless because God was going to do something through the ordinary task of his life. Sometimes I believe when we have this attitude of the kingdom of man, we think that I am just a fill-in-the-blank. God can't use me. I am just a fill-in-the-blank. God can't use my resources because I, I have just a, I, I'm just retired. I, I can't do anything. And the kingdom of man mentality says this, the task that we do on a normal basis is meaningless. Because it's, it's just what I do. But that is not the way that God intended us to live our lives. And that is exactly what Jesus was trying to teach the disciples here. And, and instead of these four attitudes of the kingdom of man, let's look at and let's put on the four attitudes of the kingdom of God. Quickly, number one, the problem, the first attitude of the kingdom of God is the problem that God allows is sanctifying. The problem that God allows is sanctifying. And what does that mean? When there is a problem that's in our life, our, our prayer to God should be, not, God, what are you going to do? But, Lord, I don't know the outcome of this problem, but how can you use this problem to draw me closer to you? Thursday, Wednesday, uh, Wednesday after the evening service, I, I went over to TMC, and I was in there with Don Booth, and, and this was before he went and uh, had uh, a downward turn, and I said, hey, Don, you've been in the hospital for three weeks. What has, God, what has God kind of spoken to you about during those last three weeks? And uh, he had a book on the shelf that he had been reading, and, and, uh, and he went through a couple things, and, and God had spoken to him in very specific ways. And he says, when I got out of this hospital, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. You know what that is? That's a kingdom of God mentality, not a kingdom of man. Because a kingdom of God attitude says, Lord, how can you use this problem in my life to draw me closer to you. The second attitude is that the solution that God uses is surrender. The solution that God uses is surrender. You know, God or Jesus did not care what they were going to bring to him. They just wanted him to bring something. And you know, it doesn't matter if you could bring a million dollars, if you could bring one dollar. It doesn't matter if you could bring the most angelic voice in the world or a voice that uh, we say uh, that honors God but no one else, right? It doesn't matter what you could bring God. 
What God wants is you to surrender to him. And I remember in my second grade boys class growing up, Barry Cater, he was a super tall guy, played uh, college basketball. He's a pastor now. He said, listen, boys, God does not care about your ability. God just cares about your availability. And he would speak into that every single week. And I, I remember that so clearly today that God does not care about what you can give him. God just wants us to say, Lord, here am I. Use me in a way that you see fit. Thirdly, I see that the offering that God desires is sacrifice. The offering that God desires is sacrifice. While you cannot see how God will multiply your offering, God will do it. And we ask, we ask Lord, can you take what I can give and multiply it, in, it into something that is God-sized? And fourthly, I see, number four, that the task that God enables is service. The task that God enables is service. And we ask the question, or we just pray to the Lord, Help me see the kingdom of God in my daily tasks. I don't know when you'll use me or what I do, but Lord, let me be ready in that moment. It doesn't matter if you are just a grandparent. You know what? When you have opportunity to speak life and truth into your grandchild, use that with every fiber of your being to point them to Jesus. If you are a parent who is just a mom or just a dad or, or just this, man, every day use those moments, those opportunities to point your child to Jesus. Use what the meaningless task that you have in your life to point people to Jesus. I ask the question, what's in your lunchbox? Do you live your life with an unhealthy short-term view? The problems that I have are useless, or the problems that I have are there, there's no help there. They're hopeless. The offering that I give, we could live our lives this way, unhealthy, a short-term view, or do we live our lives with a God, the kingdom of God attitudes? The ones that have a long-term view that ultimately believe that God can do something great with our lives. You could close your Bibles and notes, and as we close, in 2004, there was a nine-year-old boy whose name was Austin Gutwein. And Austin Gutwein lived up in Phoenix, and he lived up there with his family. And when he was nine years old in 2004, he, him and his family received a DVD in the mail uh, that gave a story about Maggie. Maggie was a young girl who lived in the country of Zambia, and Maggie's, all of Maggie's family had ultimately died to the, the horrific HIV-AIDS epidemic that has ravaged the, many of the countries in, there in Africa. Maggie was living with her great-grandmother, and, and this DVD was, asking a, uh, was an organization asking to be able to support someone just like Maggie. Austin, as a nine-year-old, said, don't have a job. Don't have anything I can offer. I can't fly over there. I can't speak your language. There's nothing that I can do. But he was encouraged to do something that he enjoyed doing to raise money to support her. So he was encouraged to, to do something that he loved to do, and, and Austin loved basketball. So he decided to hold a fundraising event where he would shoot free throws for money. And on World's Aid Day in 2004, he shot 2,057 free throws in one day. Now, if, you, if that's a 10-hour day, it's, he's shooting about three free throws per minute for 10 hours. And why 2,057? What's the importance of that number? Well, 2,057 is the number of children that on, a, on an everyday basis become orphaned because of the HIV-AIDS epidemic there in Zambia. So he said, I want to shoot this amount of free throws. And that day, in 2004, he raised close to $3,000 to send to the country of Zambia and help out in this area. 
But the fire kept burning, and in the following years, Austin continued to hold these events, and eventually NBC did a spot on them, and, and this, his organization, Hoops of Hope, really grew uh, to a large scale. And I, and I don't know if the trainers remember, but right after that, uh, we heard about this, and we got in our car in South Carolina, and we drove several hours north to North Carolina to, to see how this event is, is organized and what's going on, and, and, and we were able to partake in that event. What started in a hot and sweaty gym in Phoenix moved to over 25,000 people participating in future events and over 20 countries participating in this event. This nine-year-old was convinced that he could be used by God to make a difference in someone's life. And what started with $3,000 kind of snowballed. And, and over, to this day, there's been over a million dollars given to help people in Zambia with this HIV-AIDS epidemic. Now, I love Austin because he's my cousin, and he lives up in Washington now and he, with his family, but what, I, what I'm thankful for Austin was this. He didn't let anything defy him from doing and stepping into the calling that God had for him. He had no idea that through his organization, he'd be able to build the Jonathan Sims School, that he'd be able to build several medical clinics, that he'd be able to provide fresh water, and he was just doing this. That's all he was doing. But yet, here's, here's Austin. He had a God-sized vision. He said, I'm going to help. I'm going to work for the kingdom of God. And he was able to serve a physical need just like Jesus served a physical need here in this story. As we close this message, what is in your lunchbox? Are the problems that you're facing overwhelming? Can you not see the end in sight? Or do you have a God-sized vision where you say, Lord, may you use the problems that are in my life to sanctify me? Are you living for the kingdom of God or are you living for the kingdom of man?